So, hey there, this is the COVID Siders podcast. Um, we are a group of third year medical students at VCU School of Medicine in Richmond, uh, talking about ethical issues from our physician patient society class um, that have an interest to all of us. Um, so my name is Joe. Uh, I'll be talking about physician assisted suicide. Um, Kath is talking about end of life care. Hey, Mark, yeah, talking about uh, Mark, are we talking about uh, physician burnout and wellness? Hey, this is Mark. Nice to meet y'all. And Josh will be talking about physician-patient relationship. Hey, this is Josh. Nice to meet you all. All right. So we decided to do a podcast just because we all have uh, different interests in these um, ethical issues and things that we've learned about through our um, physician-patient society class that apply throughout the medical field. So we thought a podcast would be the best way to explore all these topics um, and kind of allow us to go in whichever direction our interests and exploration take us. Um, so thank you all for coming along for the ride and we hope you enjoy it. Um, Definitely not endorsed by the actual curbsiders. Yeah, <laughs> uh, trade, trademark, no uh, plagiarism, et cetera. Um, but anyway, we're throughout this um, first like kind of introductory episode, we'll go around and introduce our topics, talk about why we chose them, our interest in them, um, past experiences that have um, kind of created those interests, what we've learned so far, uh, how these topics have come into play during our experiences in the hospital clinic setting during M3, um, and then our future goals and kind of directions that we hope this uh, podcast will go in. Um, you guys have anything else before we uh, get started? Great introduction, Joe. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Right. <laughs> um, so as I said, I'm Joe. Uh, I'll be starting off talking about physician-assisted suicide. Um, so in the United States, um, physician-assisted death, uh, physician-assisted suicide, there are many different terms, um, kind of have different political connotations and stuff. But for the uh, purposes of the podcast, we'll just pretty much be mainly sticking to physician-assisted death, physician-assisted suicide to mean the same thing, um, which is that uh, practice by which a terminally ill person who is believed to be of sound mind and has a prognosis of six, month or, six months or less um, requests, obtains uh, if they feel their suffering has become unbearable, and then they self-administer barbiturates to end their life. Um, Whereas the term euthanasia, um, which is typically practiced in other countries such as like the Netherlands, Canada, Belgium, Luxembourg, Colombia, Switzerland, Portugal, and Australia um, is where another person, generally a physician, acts to cause the death of that person. Um, so currently euthanasia is illegal in the United States, um, whereas physician-assisted death is currently authorized in the states of California, Colorado, uh, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. Um, and all of those states, uh, they have they make their own separate laws. There's no federal um, laws or guidelines regarding this topic. So all states have different laws and procedures which they follow, um, but all generally kind of follow the same gist in which um, to qualify for legal assistance in this um, department individuals who seek physician-assisted suicide must meet certain criteria, um, generally, uh, which include having a terminal, terminal illness, um, providing that they're of sound mind, voluntarily and repeatedly expressing their wish to die, 
And then um, after they meet all those requirements, they have to take a specified lethal dose of drugs themselves. Uh, so the physicians just prescribe those drugs and then the patients have to choose to take them themselves. Whereas in um, other countries, physicians actually administer um, a lethal dose of medication. So that's kind of the differences between the US and um, some other countries around the world. Uh, another big difference that I wanna explore um, in this topic is the uh, expansion of this, of physician suicide, physician assisted suicide to minors. Um, mm. So in 2005, the Netherlands became the first country to decriminalize euthanasia for infants with hopeless prognosis and intractable pain. Um, and then they recently extended this law to terminate old children under, to include terminate old children under the age of 12 as well. Um, and then another country, Belgium, amended its 2002 Euthanasia Act to extend um, rights of euthanasia to minors as well. Um, and those are really the only two examples I have found where euthanasia is legal in minors. So I thought it was very interesting and um, would definitely like to explore the differences between adult um, and child euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, um, the legality, the uh, cultural um, associations, uh, as well as religious, spiritual components, and then kind of how physicians and other health professionals can um, kind of bridge those gaps and work with those challenges if this were to be legalized, um, moreover, or if they end up going somewhere where this uh, where this practice is legal and their patients may seek out um, this type of care. Um, so let's see. But the main reason why um, I was first interested in this topic at all, um, I took a class called Medical Dilemmas in undergrad at Virginia Tech, um, part of a medicine and society minor, um, where he read uh, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, um, where he kind of talked about end-of-life care. So this does kind of go along with uh, CAP's uh, topic as well. Um, but we also explored the case of Brittany Maynard, who was a woman in her early 30s, um, married, had a child, uh, and lived in um, Oregon, California, where uh, physician-assisted suicide was legal. And this was a big case in the kind of early 2000, late 2000s, 2010s era. Um, it really brought big attention to um, this topic. So I just found it really interesting uh, and want to explore the kind of ethical and issues that come along with that and just made me wonder if I was in that same position, how would I handle it and how would I, um, what would I do if I had the option or um, yeah. didn't have the option. But uh, as far as what I've learned so far, um, Mainly, legal um, research the legality that I covered previously, um, and then also exploring those ethical issues that we talked about in PPS uh, physician patient um, society class during M1 and M2. So, the uh, concept of uh, first of all, do no harm. Um, we take the Hippocratic oath. Uh, so prescribing patients lethal doses of medications um, can be construed as going against that. And then 
there's also the concept of patient autonomy that they should have the right to choose what is best in their best interests. Um, so it's definitely walking a fine line. And I want to talk about, um, I would like to talk about physicians and other healthcare professionals about their, uh, their views and um, how they handle, handle those issues um, if, they, if they came across them in their practice. Um, as far as uh, patient experience of the, that I've encountered, um, obviously this is not legal in Virginia. Um, so I can only comment on cases I've seen where this may have been either a viable option or um, patients may have requested this or stuff like that. But uh, the first case I can think of is um, this uh, on my peds rotation, um, this 17-month-old um, female who was diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Um, and she was on a ventilator, really, I mean, non-responsive um, and just really a difficult situation to endure. And um, her parents were clearly stressed. They had, they were struggling to pay for her medical bills and uh, not really able to come visit her at the hospital all, at all. And then really end goal of her medical treatment was really just to have her go to a um, uh, in or a uh, medical like uh, nursing care facility um, for care and her life expectancy was only age three or four. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what these and these parents were obviously like very stressed. It'd be interesting to see like what their if they had this option um, and how physicians if they want to do it if physician like how physicians would approach even bringing up this topic with parents going through such a difficult time, if that would be one of the options outright mentioned, or if it would only be something that you considered if the parents brought it up themselves, um, since it is such an ethically and morally challenging topic. Um, another case uh, I saw was in uh, recently on my internal medicine rotation, a um, elderly male who was uh, brought in for just chronic malnutrition, um, an ultramental status who was, he was like concerned for elderly abuse. He was soiled with urine and feces, apparently under the care of his niece um, and just really mal malnourished. Um, I think he was probably about six foot tall and um, weighed like 96 pounds. So it was really a sad case to see. Um, and that got me thinking if he was how just how I would approach this topic if um, he had voiced his opinion in this area and as well as having the ultramental status, like how his um, like how rank gets psychiatry evolved and how they would evaluate this. And then also in the case of elder abuse with his caretaker possibly not caring for him. Um, and being power of attorney, uh, how if they had voiced this option and this was a, um, this was practice was legal, how would you approach this topic with someone who may not have the patient's best interest in mind? Um, yeah. So, really, all these just brought up a ton of questions and um, 
of basically what if, and this is why I want to interview a lot of different healthcare professionals from different areas, from physicians to nurses to social work, um, how they would approach this topic if it was legal, um, and really if they morally how they would feel about it, and then ethically how they would feel um, if it was legal and if they had to carry out this practice. Um, what would they do in these situations and how they kind of justify all their actions. Um, so really my goals, so those are my main goals to explore the ethical issues of legality, patient autonomy versus do no harm, um, different cultural spiritual issues that may be encountered with different pa patient populations. Um, and then kind of going along with um, CAP's topic, talk, like to talk to like a palliative care attending. Um, that's probably one of my next uh, interviews that I'm gonna do. Um, and see how they would talk about managing end-of-life care versus if this was legalized in Virginia versus um, they went to somewhere else in the country, how, uh, where physician-assisted suicide was legal, how would they approach this topic with different families? Um, and then really, uh, as I've been involved in the hospital more, especially currently on my IM rotation and then with uh, PEDS as well, I've seen how social work is so heavily involved with so many patients. Um, that they would, how they would approach this topic as well, just because they have uh, such a say and um, such a, they help with many, many different aspects of um, the patient's healthcare and uh, everything. And then also a, um, for the topic of minors specifically, um, child life specialists who focus on helping patients to cope with, uh, pediatric patients to cope with uh, being in hospital. Um, I'd like to talk to them and see their views and see if there are any um, experiences that they've had that kind of highlight this topic, um, as well as talking to people in uh, psychiatry as well to see how they would evaluate someone for these. Um, if they requested physician suicide or um, how they approach these different ethical issues as well. Uh, but that's really what I've kind of been able to learn and cover so far and then the future um, goals and directions I hope to go with my future interviews and episodes of the podcast. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely an interesting topic and something we don't learn much about in medical school and something we don't see very much in the state of Virginia. So I'm interested to uh, see what you're able to dig up on that. Cool. Yeah, and so in, I guess in the same vein, um, my topic, I'm Cap. My topic is um, end of life care, and so I, I was struck, and even as even as Joe was talking about his topic, I was struck by how common it is to be caring for someone at the end of their life, um, even in medical school, to be assisting in the care of someone who's near the end of their life, and how we as the we as medicine as a whole are not very good at it. Um, I mean, and, and when we are, there's ways we can be better at it still. Um, I was really struck by, and I initially interested in this topic because of an experience I had on my, uh, internal medicine rotation. There was a patient who was being seen for a urinary tract infection, uh, although had much more serious underlying medical conditions, um, including but not limited to dementia that was um, 
once he was admitted to the hospital and treated for the urinary tract infection, it, the, the underlying dementia prevented it from leaving. Um, and essentially, he couldn't be discharged to his original nursing home um, because of his uh, behavioral problems and uh, delirium secondary to the dementia. Um, his only living relative was his sister. So she was in charge of his uh, medical decisions, but due to COVID, she was not able to visit him in the hospital physically. Uh, and she continued to advocate for his medical care um, in the best way that she knew how, but uh, without really being able to see this, uh, this patient, her brother, the, the decisions were um, probably in, 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 from my perspective and from the medical team's perspective, not in necessarily his best interest, um, given his current state of health and the, the barriers that were actually preventing him from being discharged. Um, and it was, it was just kind of, it was, it was sad. It was sad to see the healthcare system fail in that way. And in, in reality, we were treating numbers, we were treating white counts and we were treating, um, behavioral episodes, uh, alertness and orientation. We, we weren't treating the patient as a person. Um, we weren't, we weren't able to deliver the care that was in, um, that would, that would, that would actually help him. Um, and I think that a lot of that is to, and, and so that, that, that really made me think about how we as a, we as a, um, a profession can, can do a better job of, of helping patients at the end of their life. Um, so what I've, um, what I've kind of been thinking about is talking with, uh, first, I'm going to talk with um, a nurse who takes care of patients in a, um, in a predominantly COVID ward in a small kind of under-resourced hospital in North Carolina. Um, so to get a, a perspective on how coronavirus pandemic has affected uh, families' abilities to see and make decisions for their loved ones at the time that it comes to, to transition patients from, from doing all that is possible to doing all that um, needs to be done, I guess, or, or, or comfort care is the term I, I hear thrown around a lot. Um, and I think that's uh, very closely related to palliative care, very closely related to hospice care um, in a lot of ways. And so I, I also anticipate talking to uh, some palliative care docs, kind of like what Joe was talking about um, in that sense. And then also um, case managers. Um, I think that the interdisciplinary approach to end-of-life care is something I want to get a better perspective on. So my goal is to talk to case managers as well. Um, really, uh, so far, um, I've, I've learned that uh, end of life is, is, a, is a, obviously not an easy topic to broach with a family member. And then being unable to see your loved one in the hospital makes it all that much harder. And it's harder on the healthcare system on the physicians and the nurses and the case managers involved, the social workers, et cetera, but also on the, and most importantly, arguably the patient themselves. Um, and so that's, that's going to be my topic. Uh, <laughs> so I think we, uh, we've, Joe and I have covered some, some of the heavier aspects of medicine. Um, and then 
uh, we'll have uh, we'll have Mark and Josh talk about some of the maybe the other side of healthcare, the the doctor. Yeah, and, and so this is Mark, and, and just listening to that, it's it's all so interesting. I mean, I did a um, a geriatrics rotation recently, and I would yeah. that firsthand. I mean, it's really like just a the whole side of, of end of life care and, and transitioning. And it's kind of like the monetary side of it and everything. And especially in this, this day and age with COVID, it's like this whole other thing to an already complicated, already complicated topic in medicine. So kind of yeah. like yeah, what you're looking into, it's just, it's very important. I mean, I mean, it truly is. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really cool. Uh, so uh, this is Mark. Um, I'm, my topic that I'd like to talk about is physician wellness, um, specifically burnout, depression, suicide. And these are topics that are like widely prevalent amongst medical professionals, but seemingly still taboo um, overall, which is very sad because we're talking large numbers of, of doctors experience like some level of, of depression or suicidality right. or thoughts of suicidality or actually completion of suicidality. Um, even here, I mean, we recently had, uh, an, an internal medicine resident that took his own life. Um, and then during this, the time of the pandemic, and then also we had, um, an alum that was working in, uh, uh, New York in an emergency room, an emergency room physician that took her life. Um, and that's sort of what prompted me to think about this topic as, as a whole, um, there is a lot of media coverage through sources like, like Newsweek and, and, and Wall Street Journal, everything that talk about this, but it's like, it still doesn't feel like it's fully explored or it, it or at the very least, there's nothing being done about it. Um, it's kind of the burden of taking care of patients really does fall on the physician uh, and I think a lot of physicians have this general sense that there's no way out or there's no, they have to bear the burden of their job and they don't take care of themselves. Um, and that was sort of what prompted me to, to kind of look into this or, or think more about it because it's such a prevalent thing. I mean, even kind of when I was on, on wards, I would have these, uh, especially internal medicine wards, I'd have these kind of offhanded conversations with some of the residents. And there was like two that really stuck out to me. Um, one was, uh, this was kind of like, he was talking when there was the height of the pandemic was going on. He was making mention that um, he just kind of said something to the effect of like, are we supposed to be martyrs as doctors? Or like, if, if we're amidst this pandemic and we're amidst something that's, that's really kind of like changing the, the fabric of medicine, like, is it is it, are we going to be safe? Are we going to bring home like this, this new disease to our family? Like, are we expected to still be coming in with like lack of PPE and mm -hmm. as to what this even is? Yeah. And he was kind of saying that that was bringing like an, a, an even higher level of like depression or sort of like unwell feeling in his mind. Cause he was saying he's already stressed out before this. And now he has this like additional level of stress um, while this is all going on. And so that was the second big part of what I wanted to look into was uh, kind of before this pandemic happened, there was already this big topic of uh, and notion that there was physician burnout, but how is this COVID pandemic or pandemics in general, how, how much is that adding um, to physicians kind of outlook and, and mentality um, 
during work. Uh, and so to just kind of hit upon like um, some of the things that I learned uh, pre-pandemic, um, physician burnout, depression, according to multiple studies, tends to trend somewhere around 50%. Uh, and this is actually twice the national average for other professions. Um, and that could be a, due to a whole host of things, workload. It could be also due to people who are attracted to medicine tend to kind of be more perfectionist uh, than some other type of profession. So it's almost this perfect storm, but the number's high. It's roughly 50%. Um, there's actually an, an output in terms of healthcare costs due to this. Um, it's roughly about $5 billion per year. Um, and this is due both in part to kind of uh, like reduced clinical productivity uh, on the side of the physician and as well as physician turnover. Um, interestingly, kind of middle-aged physicians ranging kind of between 45 and 54 year old, they can even go kind of depending on the survey above 50%. Um, an interesting one and a very sad uh, statistic is that 14% of physicians within the last year that were surveyed, I can't remember the exact number that were surveyed, but it was something on the order of 14,000. 14% said they had contemplated suicide within the last year and 1% had actually completed suicide. And that is not a small number. If you're thinking one out of every 100 people have actually completed suicide in the profession, that's something that's really has to kind of be looked into. I mean, that's, that's just sort of, it's, it's sad. Um, uh, another thing is that, um, and another proxy of this burnout is that burnout amongst physicians who experience burnout, uh, the rate of adverse effects uh, that patients experience are doubled among those that aren't um, uh, experiencing burnout. So if you take into effect that the, the burnout is doubled, um, if you take into effect that the that half the physicians are experiencing some level of burnout. And then amongst those half that you have twice as many of adverse effects uh, amongst patients, it, it can be kind of a daunting statistic. Um, and then there's a whole kind of reasons as to why that are cited that, that there is this uh, burnout and that's due to kind of like uh, more time spent on non-clinical tasks. People feel like they're working too long. Um, low respect from colleagues or no respect from colleagues, lack of compensation. Doctors don't feel as autonomous as they once did. Um, and in terms of interventions or what's being done about this, there really is not much. It seems to be on more of a, a systemic or system-based level rather than an individual level. It's found that kind of like meditation, exercise, healthy lifestyle habits, dedicated self-time uh, aren't really solving the issue at its root. So it tends to be sort of a systemic issue. Um, and there's a lot of stigmatization with seeking out mental help or so that physicians feel like they can't really reach out. It feels, they feel like they're gonna have some professional consequences um, and things like that. Um, and then, so kind of to bring that sort of what I learned into like the COVID era, the data is very mixed. So there's some studies that say uh, doctors actually felt like a call to action uh, during the, the pandemic and they feel like they're more invigorated to work. And then some, some uh, surveys that I, I read into said that the burnout's much higher. Depression has gone from like 50% to upwards of like 60, 70%. Um, so that's kind of what prompted me to want to 
ask physicians here and providers here one-on-one -on -one to kind of gauge where they both feel they've felt during this whole kind of like paradigm shifting pandemic um, and what they see in their colleagues. Um, and if they can get kind of a gauge sort of a general sense of, of how the morale and, and kind of depressive symptoms and things like that have shifted uh, since the, the virus has been prevalent in the medical community. And so that's sort of uh, where I'm looking at moving forward. I'm, I've been having a lot of offhanded uh, conversations with a lot of residents, uh, with a lot of attendings about this. And the general sense is that there's far more of a feeling of burnout, far more of a feeling of overwhelming and like you needing to work more and, and enter in more information and more patients. And it's kind of all uh, kind of ambiguous foundational sort of things like they don't know where medicine's going and stuff like that. So that's really causing this generally increased sense of burnout um, amongst the people that I've been talking to. Um, so kind of like that's sort of where I'm planning on going is, is actually getting uh, sitting down and having some more interface time where I actually record it and, and put some of these conversations in, in the um, podcast format. But um, I think that about does it for me. And so I'll like to kick it over to, to Josh here. Um, thanks for listening to me. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Mark. Yeah, that's a really important issue going on right now, physician burnout and just mental health in the medical field, I think. Sometimes, you know, that's uh, sometimes that's just brushed over and I think we need to talk more about that as well. So yeah, thank you for sharing, Mark. Um, so for me, uh, I want to explore the topic of physician-patient relationship and how, um, you know, one of the main aspects of, of a good doctor-patient relationship and uh, what are the good qualities of a long-term relationship between a doctor and a patient. And I, I, chose this I chose this topic because we learned in class the importance of, of a solid physician-patient relationship in obtaining a thorough history and physical and getting a good diagnosis and establishing trust and rapport uh, for long-term care. And I'm interested to getting to know how this uh, doctor patient relationship is impacted during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, I did some research on this and I've noticed that, um, that during this pandemic, there has been a switch to more telehealth or virtual visits uh, between doctors and patients in order to minimize exposure of COVID uh, to both the patients and the doctors. And traditionally, interaction between doctors and patients have been through in-person office visits. So I just wanted to explore how the pandemic has affected the way physicians deliver effective care to, to their patients through this switch to more virtual telehealth visits. And I've noticed, um, I found that uh, telehealth does provide a quicker and more convenient way of communication with the patients while maintaining safety as the number one priority, especially during this pandemic. And uh, research also has shown that it's more convenient, um, more efficient and it saves time and transportation for the patient. So it's convenient for the patient as well. Um, but I noticed um, 
a couple articles mention that telehealth does have some drawbacks. Uh, one, one main drawback is the fact that when you do telehealth, we're not able to do that, tra tra that traditional physical exam in order to uh, look, just trying to find, find out the symptoms of the patients. And I feel like um, that has been also an ongoing issue uh, during my experiences in my rotation uh, in third year. And another possible drawback of telehealth is the lack of uh, in-person interaction and the lack of um, that long-term human connection with the patient. Uh, I feel like that has been taken away um, through telehealth. And I've experienced this during my third year um, using telehealth, especially in the outpatient setting. And I noticed um, a couple things um, when using telehealth. Uh, first, uh, I did notice the benefits of using telehealth, how fast and convenient it was in interacting with patients. And I noticed the benefit of virtual visits in maintaining the safety of patients and preventing exposures of COVID-19 through patients. And I thought it was a more efficient way to interact with patients, especially, uh, I feel like telehealth was especially good in, uh, in follow-up visits or patients coming in for medication refills because I feel like that's been more um, a quicker way of doing visits. But I feel like doing telehealth, um, I remembered during my rotation uh, in internal medicine rotation, uh, during my rheumatology block, uh, most of my visits were through telehealth. And I noticed uh, a lot of patients came in with symptoms of joint pains or arthritis. And I wasn't able to uh, do a thorough physical exam on them just to get to the bottom of their situation. And I feel like um, I was prevented of providing that effective care to, to that patient. And um, another issue is uh, during the family medicine rotation, uh, I noticed uh, during the telehealth, um, sometimes patients can have, um, can, can have trouble articulating their symptoms and that could lead us lead to miscommunication or misunderstandings and even possible misdiagnosis uh, for the patient. For example, uh, we saw this patient through telehealth. Uh, she reported pain in her legs whenever she walks. And we thought it was pleplication due to peripheral artery disease, uh, basically due to her history of hypertension and high cholesterol. So uh, we told her uh, we just wanted to check up with her. So uh, she, she agreed to come into the office after hours so that uh, there's no other patients that she could possibly be exposed to. Um, and so we saw her uh, at the very last hour and, and we did a physical exam on her and we noticed that she didn't have uh, issues with claudication. It turns out that she's been having pain in her right hip and that has been causing her um, these, these, these issues. So, so I realized from that moment um, 
you know, I, we learn in class the importance of localizing the symptoms through history and physical exam. And I feel like in that moment, I feel like telehealth made that aspect of healthcare less convenient and more difficult to do, especially considering the fact that in telehealth, we don't see the entire patient, we only see the patient's face. And sometimes patients may have difficulty articulating their issues. So I feel like in that moment, doing a physical exam um, was definitely helpful um, in uh, narrowing down the differential. Otherwise, we would have gone a completely different path of uh, diagnosing her with peripheral artery disease, and we, we would have gone the wrong path of treating her, and that would, be, that, that would have been a disaster. So I feel like moments like these emphasize the need for in-person interaction with the patient to prevent any misunderstandings, misdiagnosis, and, and any mismanagement in uh, delivering care and treatment for the patients. So I felt like that was one of the main issues in doing telehealth. So the future plan for now I wanna do is um, I want to do an interview with either a resident or attending or any other healthcare worker and just ask them how this pandemic has affected their way of interacting with patients and how often they have used telehealth in their patient interactions and whether they believed telehealth is just as beneficial and just as useful as traditional in-person office visits in providing effective care and establishing long-term relationships with patients. So that's the plan for now. Great work. Thanks, Josh. Um, I definitely agree with that. I feel like, I wonder, I wonder if telehealth kind of like, I'm has limitations a decline in patient care because I feel like every time I interview a patient um like I get go through the whole HPI review systems but then no matter what like if I'm doing like a physical exam I'm still kind of like asking them general questions and they'll mm. like remember something if I'm like like oh yeah I have pain in my leg if I'm like examining like their leg or skin or whatever like they'll think of like new things that they didn't tell me before that may be helpful so I'm wondering if that has like caused a decline or like caused more things to go on notice. So that's definitely a great point you break up, bring up, Josh. Yeah, I think I feel like there's a therapeutic relationship to being in a doctor's office too. I mean, I can only speak to my own uh, experience going to doctor's offices for my own healthcare, but seeing a doctor over the internet is just kind of not the same. You know, it's not, it's not bad and there's definitely a place for it, but all the time, like I would, as a patient, I, I kind of, it, it doesn't feel the same. It's definitely okay. different. Totally. There's also this like interesting concept though of also compliance. Like, can you reach more patients? Because you have to imagine like it's sometimes hard too for patients to get in to clinic. Um, so is there like some benefit even also to like having phone-based visits or, or Zoom visits for people who can't get in or make appointments as easily? So it's just kind of like all an interesting kind of like subject matter, especially in this time. I mean, it's like there's so yeah. many at play because I, I like it, at least for me like we would see higher compliance rates amongst virtual patients um, than we did for in-clinic patients but then again you're losing that whole aspect this whole aspect of like physical exam and like like actually being face-to-face -face and interfacing and like building a real relationship and like so yeah it's, it's just an, it's very interesting yeah josh mm -hmm. that's it's a super interesting topic um yeah 
I was really struck by uh, the statistics you threw out, Mark, on uh, on physician suicide. I, I you, you said one in 100 physicians actually complete suicide, which it, to me, that, that means that suicide is a job hazard of being a physician at that yes. point. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, that's like getting, I, I, I don't know the statistic, the epidemiology of other um, job hazards of being a doctor, but I, I, I assume like, for instance, um, getting a needle stick and contracting a bloodborne illness is probably much less likely than committing suicide. Right. And even just putting kind of it into context, it's like, imagine in our class, that's two people. That's not insignificant, right? I no, mean, not at all. That's, that's, um, that's two, that's two people. And I mean, if you're talking like broad, broad scope, I mean, how many people that ends up being, I mean, you're right. It is almost too many. Yeah. 1%. Um, again, that was off of, uh, I, I, I actually saved the, uh, the link for the paper that was for it, but I'm hoping that that's a real statistic that I cited because um, it does sound so high, you know, like it's because that's that's like that's alarming if true. Um, yeah, I know I know it's high. I don't know it's the numbers high. off the yeah. top of my head, but yeah, I know it's high. So it's, I mean, we, we look forward to, to look forward to what you find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited for the uh, for future updates. I was thinking even um, just kind of just popped in my head, but like Cap and I, we talked about kind of being on like a similar uh, an end of life care thing with kind of different solutions or kind of views of the a similar problem. So even like a joint episode or something in the future might be pretty cool to do. Oh yeah, uh, obviously Definitely. Mark and Josh would be invited too, but uh, <laughs> just no, you can't those, come. <laughs> those two like two opposite ends of the spectrum would be pretty interesting, also. Yeah. Lots well, of, um, lots of options. I think that concludes our, uh, our, our teaser episode for the, the inaugural COVID ciders podcast. Um, so I think, uh, I think unless you all have anything else to say, I'm going to do a little sign out here. How's that sound? Sounds, Sounds good. Great. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for the COVID ciders. Um, I'm cap. Uh, we got Josh, Joe and Mark with us here. And uh, coming up in a few weeks, we'll be having some uh, interviews with different healthcare providers across many different fields, uh, talking about different topics that we kind of discussed today. Um, so stay tuned to learn some more about those interesting aspects of the medical profession. Um, and uh, now I guess we can turn over to our sponsors. Uh, 